I invite you to turn in your Bibles this evening to Psalm 113. Psalm 113 belongs to a series of psalms that are often referred to as the Hallels. Hallel means hallelujah or praise the Lord, praise Jehovah. Uh, It is a psalm that begins with a call to worship as a means of exhortation and application. And then the rest of that psalm, verses 4 to the end of that psalm, give the reason, verse 9, for why we should worship, why we should hallel. Sometimes the psalms provide that reason. And then the call to worship, this begins with a call to worship. And so I would encourage you to listen carefully. You can follow along as I read from Psalm 113. Praise the Lord. Praise us, servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its going down, The Lord's name is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who dwells on high, who humbles himself to behold the things that are in the heavens and in the earth? He raises the poor out of the dust, and he lifts the needy out of the ash heap, that he may set him with princes, with the princes of his people. He grants The barren woman a home like a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. Let me pray for the blessing of the preaching of the word of God. Lord, we come to you this evening. And as we are called to rejoice in you, O Lord, may our hearts be stirred by the reasons. For we have seen you do mighty things in history. We have seen you do mighty things in our history. As individuals, as families, as a church. And so we expect, for you are a God that does not change as every passing shadow. But you, O Lord, stand forever. You are the Alpha and Omega. And so we have every reason to hope that you will continue to marvel us at your glory and your condescending grace. May tonight be one of those nights that we might reflect upon for years to come as we see your beauty and your glory in the scriptures we pray in your name. Amen. So Psalm 113 was one of the first passages I preached in my internship as a lowly intern uh, in 2010. Seems like a long time ago. It wasn't that long ago. As an intern at Matthew's OPC and all my nerves, somehow I remembered this text. And I remembered it as one of my favorite passages in the whole of Scripture. Uh, Psalm 113, as I expressed this morning... These themes of the king and the kingdom, the king and his citizens, is another psalm that focuses upon the qualities of our king. And he is a king unlike the kings of earth. In fact, my original plan was to preach Psalm 115 in its entirety one Sunday morning and then Psalm 113 in its entirety on one Sunday evening. But Psalm 115 was just, it's just it's too rich, it's too much meat to chew. And so I felt like we needed a few Sundays to chew it, three to be precise. Psalm 113 stands as a foil, another foil, against what the gods of earth are like. And so if you look at all of the fake gods, the silly gods, the gods that are inventions of men, and whether or not they are fashioned 
into something that resembles what you might think they look like, uh, whether it is a concept, an ideology, a a made-up divine being, these gods fall into one of two camps. Either they are so transcendent and holy, they are of no good to us. They are inapproachable. Or they are so earthy and imminent, they have no real power. They're basically just glorified men. Psalm 113 solves that problem. It, it splits the difference as it communicates a God who is infinitely transcendent, high above the nations, whose glory is above the heavens, and is still willing and able to meet with people who are brokenhearted. That is our God. He is not either high or here. He is both high and here. He is both there and here. He is transcendent and imminent. And those are really the two main points that I want to make this evening. The God who is high and the God who is here. Maybe the reason I remember this sermon is because even I can remember those two body points for 11 years. (laughs) The God who is high and the God who is here. This sermon's been reworked a number of times since then. In Isaiah, we read, Behold, the nations are like a drop in the bucket and are accounted as dust upon the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Isaiah is writing of the incomparable power and glory of Almighty God. That he sits, verse 4, above the nations. Now, verse 4 through verse 6 speaks of God's transcendence. Verse 7, 8, and 9 speaks of his imminence. But before that, before the God who is high and the God who is here is this call to worship. This is the application, and it comes before the sermon. So sometimes application does come first, or exhortation. We are told to do what? To praise, to praise, to praise. Three times we are told to present our hallelujahs. Praise the Lord. Praise those servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. So we are to praise God. Who? We who know him as our redeemer. As our Lord, praise his name. Now his name, as we know in scripture, is always associated with what he does. So I have many names. I asked someone the other day, because I didn't, was not familiar with their mother, I said, what's the name of your mom? And he said, Mom. <laughs> I remember when my daughter, who's now married, just recently married, and I heard her call her now husband, Babe. Like, what is it? That's my name for my wife. What are you doing calling your husband that name? That's my name for my wife. But that's only a name... That she calls him. I can't call him babe, right? (laughs) Or no woman should call him babe. If they are, they're in trouble. So names are indicative not just of what they do, but significance of relationship. And so when God comes to Moses in the book of Exodus in the burning bush, he gives to Moses a very unique and significant name. Moses says, all right, I'm going into Exodus What am I going to say to Pharaoh and to the people of Israel when they ask, who sent you? And God said, tell them I am. yod Hey, vah Hey, Y-H-W-H. There are no vowels in ancient Hebrew. 
And so we take these little signs. If you ever have the opportunity to read Hebrew, you'll see these little markings above the consonants that are vowel sounds. Yahweh. yod heh In fact, when I write Yahweh in my sermon notes, in order to save room, I put Y-H-W-H. All caps. In your Bibles, you will see Lord in all caps. You see that in verse 1. Praise Yahweh. Praise those servants of Yahweh. Praise the name of Yahweh. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. The Yahweh's name is to be praised. Yahweh over and over. And the reason why this name is used is in the same way that we call our father's father or our mother's mother. And no one else gets to do that. It's a name of covenant relationship. And so we are told as those who are in covenant with God to praise him, to ascribe blessing to him, and when we are to worship all the time. From the rising of the sun to its going down, he is to be praised. So you may ask yourself, when am I to worship God? And the answer to that question is there's never a time when you should not be worshiping in some capacity. You may experience this even in your prayer life. When you make decisions, you are seeking what from the Lord? Wisdom, understanding. Lord, what am I to do? Now, if you're expecting the clouds to sort of reform and say, buy that house, marry that person, you're going to wait forever. That's not how God operates. What he does is he reveals in his word righteousness and wisdom. And then children, I hate to say it, he gives you parents, parents, He gives you friends or peers or mentors in the faith, those who have gone before, those who have a little further down the road. We are to use those avenues, those means of grace. But we are to worship him. Why? Well, the first reason, as I've said already, is that he is a holy God and none is like him. The Lord is high above all the nations, his glory above the heavens. The question then, rhetorically, rather, Who is like the Lord our God who dwells on high, who humbles himself to behold the things that are in the heavens and in the earth? He must humble himself to see the things that are most exalted in creation. Uh, Growing up, my uncle, who is an ER doctor, single his whole life, had doctor kind of money, if you know what I mean. And so because he was single, he could spend his money on whatever he wanted to. And he would take all these trips. And one of the trips he took was when Halley's Comet was passing by Earth. He flew to Australia. He bought a telescope and a camera, and he took a picture of Halley's Comet. And then he blew that picture up into this six-foot-by-four-foot picture. And it was sitting in his office and one day in his house. And I'm looking at it going, what is this? He goes, that's Halley's Comet. And he would go, wow, you flew all the way to Australia, and you took a – and it's, it is amazing – I remember when we went to South Carolina not many years ago to see the or to be in the path of totality as the eclipse passed through North America. Did you know that there is a complete solar eclipse every seven minutes somewhere, every seven days somewhere in the world? It's amazing. It's unbelievable. And we already have a planned trip, a trip planned for going to Lake Erie in 2026 to go. It's worth seeing. A handful of seconds of darkness. We were at the zoo, and I, it was crazy. The animals were uncomfortable. You could tell there were some strange noises, and everybody was just marveling at it. God looks down on that stuff. 
He doesn't fly to Australia to look through a telescope. He humbles himself to look at those things that men worship as gods, like the sun. He looks down upon the nations. He looks down upon creation. Uh, We see this language in the book of Genesis where men in their pagan idolatry and all of the ingenuity that they can muster, they built a tower to go up into heaven. And Moses, with all of the irony that he could muster by God's gracious Holy Spirit, says that God went down to look at it. What's What's going on down there? What you got? And they're cutting themselves. They're offering human sacrifices. They are exalting themselves so that they might get to God. But God must come down to see it. A puny little thing you've made. He is utterly unmeasurable. Not just in size, for our Lord does not possess measurements like we do. He is a spirit and hath not a body like man. What the psalmist is speaking about is his glory and exalted nature. He's the great king. And all the kings of earth must pay homage to him. Now they reject that, many of them. But when we speak of God in this way, we speak of his transcendence. And so we must be careful. Commandment number three, how we use his name. Perhaps you've heard someone say, you know, the big guy upstairs dismissive of his glory we ought not to say those types of things we need to be careful in the way in which we incorporate the use of god's own name in our mouths that we might never tarnish we are to hold up his glory above the muck and mire of all that we see in fact one of the great sins of the church is a third commandment violation among the world we do not hold his name up as he is transcendent Glorious above all things. His glory is above the heavens. Who is like him? There is none like him. None. The nations are like dust. Years ago, there was a a volcano that erupted in Iceland. And it sent this volcanic ash tens of thousands of feet into the air. Such that there was a no-fly zone around that area because this fine ash that was even finer than the grains that are found in women's makeup would enter into the engine and clog up the engine, well, and send a plane crashing to the ground. That's the kind of dust. If it were to touch a scale, nothing. In fact, it would take millions of grains in coalition with one another, resting upon that scale to even begin to move the needle or the dial or the digital readout. All of the power of men, the great nations, even if they were to be combined, are like ants in protest of a human shoe. They're nothing. Now, this knowledge of God's transcendence is what struck fear into the heart of Martin Luther. Because he knew of the righteousness of God and the transcendence of God and the righteous anger of God that burns against our sins such that when he was a monk, he would often confess for hours on end every sin and human weakness. Such that his mentor in the Augustinian order, Tetzel, said, would you at least confess something worth confessing? And then when he understood the extraordinary grace of God... That 
transcendence was brought into its proper focus and context. Now the, ungo- the, the righteousness of God is revealed against all ungodliness. When Luther read that, he thought, that's me. I am ungodly. And God will smite me. And he will bring me low. And then as he began to read and study the New Testament as a New Testament theologian, he realized the righteousness that is revealed against all ungodliness is not merely judgment, but it is the person and work of Jesus Christ who also reveals God's glory in grace and salvation. That God is not only transcendent, he is not only a God who is high, but he is a God who is here. And so verses 4 through 6, a God who is seated above the heavens, and then in 7 through 9 we read, he raises the poor out of the dust and lifts the needy out of the ash heap, that he may seat him with princes. With the princes of his people, he grants the barren woman a home like a joyful mother of children. He's king, but he's the king that walks through the streets of the city of which he is the king. He's the colonel that fights on the front lines. He doesn't sit in the command center. He is present with his people. God is looking down in that perspective that we are to have of looking with God in essence at all of which he rules over. The king who stands on his castle and he looks down on all of that and he says, it's mine. And God is right to do so. David was wrong to do so before his sin with Bathsheba because it struck pride into his heart, but not our God. But not only does he look at all that he has made, all that he has redeemed and will continue to accomplish in his sovereignty and his mercy and power, but the way in which he manifests his saving grace is by becoming like us and entering into our affliction. Of course, Christ is the great manifestation of this principle, who was made like us in every way yet without sin. And because he came down and took upon himself human flesh, the scripture says he is able to sympathize with our weakness. We once lived in a nation where our representatives represented us, I think, maybe. We often speak of the days that go before as different from our days. Maybe we didn't. That is the ideal, is it not? To put a man forward to represent ourselves in government so that our interests might be held forth where decisions are made and implemented. That's the goal. That's what you ought to seek for in a representative Presbyterian form of government, that your elders and your deacons don't forget where they came from, who they are leading, what their interests are. God does not forget us. Remember that from this morning? Do you remember? (laughs) Psalm 11.4 says, The Lord is in his holy temple. God's transcendence does not remove him from us. In fact, his transcendence is what gives his imminence effect. You don't want a God who's just with you and is impotent as you are. You want a God who is both transcendent and imminent, who not only is with us by his spirit and comforts us, Psalm 23, He is the shepherd 
who leads his sheep beside still waters. Now, how does God do this as a means? He does it through his ministers. He does it through one another. He does it, of course, through his son. But the ministers of the gospel, remember when they asked, Lord, what shall we do? And Christ says, feed my sheep. Three times, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. It is a call and exhortation to the ministers of the gospel to be with the sheep and to feed them with the word in such a way that they are nourished. That requires intimate proximity. The only way to accomplish that is what? That the minister knows the sheep, the sheep know him, they know him well enough that they trust what he has to feed them, and he loves them enough to care that they are fed. Now, what has happened in the church today is equivalent to industrial farming, where the sheep are left alone in their own filth until the day they are butchered. (laughs) There is something that has been lost with the big business model applied even to Christian ministry. And it isn't just the personal touch of the minister. It is the absence of the knowledge of a Messiah who is with his people. We miss something of Christ when we think of pastors as executives. Christ is not our executive. We're not buying stock. We are needing his help. Now, how do we need him? Well, we need Christ to be near to us because we are sick and poor. We're mourning sin's effect upon our lives. Verse 7 This dust and ash heap is the language of mourning. Think Job. And in our mourning, sin's effect, what does Christ do? He enters into our mourning. The scriptures exhort us to do what? Weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. Not only is Christ the one who has entered into it with us, we are to enter into it with one another because Christ has shown us that great example. And then verse 8, that he may seat him with princes, with the princes of his people. Our destiny, as cliche and silly as that term may be, our future is that we will one day sit in the throne room, as it were. We will be with Christ in his throne room. And even now, we are royalty in Christ Jesus. We are the children. We are the sons and daughters the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve. It does not feel that way. There are times where it does not feel that way. But in union with Christ Jesus, covenantally, we have been raised and exalted. We were once slaves to sin, and now we are adopted sons and daughters of the true king. And then verse 9, he grants the barren woman a home like a joyful mother of children. Now, some of these things are literal in their expression and their experience, literally. But really, 7 through 9 speak of our covenantal separation from God, and then in Christ Jesus, our covenantal union with him. And so really, these are expressions of the spiritual outworking of Christ's life in us. And so, first, the center of the circle, verse 9, is not about one woman who is barren, but about the fact that we are, spiritually speaking, orphans. And spiritually speaking, we have no spiritual life in us whatsoever. There is no hope for the expansion of the covenant family of God apart from the life that he gives. And so when we look at Abram and Sarai, 
They're old. She's barren. That's significant in this way. The promise was for a child. They wanted a child. Who made her barren? God did. Why? So that he might show that the power of life and the fulfillment of the promise does not come by men but through him alone. God does not always operate that way. And what that is an example of in that little family and then in actually the next couple that would come after them, barrenness, is that when it comes to the fulfillment of the covenant of grace, you and I are wholly inert. We have no capability to fulfill that covenant in ourselves. That ended when Adam and his wife sinned in the garden. Now, obviously God can open a barren womb. He does do that. But really this is an expression of the way in which the church expands is through supernatural adoption and life. In the same way that a joyful mother is given children, the church, though barren by the Spirit, is given life. If Christ were not among us, if he is not in our midst, we're just spinning our wheels. Nothing would come of it. This is the product of God's redeeming grace. Remember the Exodus? These Hallel Psalms were sung to mark the occasion of deliverance. Psalm 113 would be a psalm sung thinking about the deliverance of Israel out of the land of Egypt and God's sustaining work to make a nation. Think of this as a national anthem. Think of this as an anthem for the church. God does things in such a way as to maximize his glory. Where there was no way, God has made a way. And before you think yourself worthy of his affection, capable of your own, go back to Psalm 113. And in fact, it echoes Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7. The Lord is speaking to Israel and he says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God gets glory through weak things made strong by his strength. He is transcendent. And he is imminent. He is not like the other gods invented by men. And so the final solution for dust dwellers, for those who are spiritually impotent and barren, for those who are not royalty and without homes, is that Christ take upon himself the sense and sentiment of the heart of God. Christ came and was like us. He is, was high. He became low so that we who are low might be raised to where he is. That's the solution. This is why we are to worship. 
And this is what we must remember even in the midst of great adversity. It isn't the promise of immediate relief. You may go to the cross. You may go to the stake. You may go to your death. You may suffer. You may be fired. You may receive mocking and derision. But know this. It does not unseat Christ from the throne. Nor does it negate his ability to use your weakness to bring himself glory. This coming Wednesday, I'll talk about John the Baptist. John the Baptist was beheaded at the request of a pagan, wicked queen who was bloodthirsty. And you know why? Because he was preaching against her. Was John the Baptist's ministry in vain because he ended up dead? No. Many were brought into the kingdom, and Christ himself used his ministry as the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. In fact, the two last prophets in the Bible, guess what happened? They were put to death by the state. John and Jesus. Now, the apostles are like the prophets, but many of them died too. And it may be that God in his wisdom calls us to suffer much for his sake. But know this. When Paul was in prison, his comfort was not that God had abandoned him, but that God would use his chains as a means of expanding and filling the church. For even at the book, end of book, uh, the letter of 2 Timothy, Paul writes, Though I am in chains, the word of God is never bound. This promise, this psalm, reminds us of the majesty of, yet condescending glory of God. And so, worship him, speak of him, repent of your lesser gods, repent of your hard heart. What will change a hard heart? Only the glory and vision of a glorious and gracious king. Find yourself taking upon your lips these words of hallelujah, that they may become a testimony to those who need salvation, to the one who is able to alone to bring salvation. And so, praise be to our transcendent and imminent God. Let's pray. O oh Lord our God, this evening.